remain standing as we honor the gospel of Jesus that comes from Luke chapter 14. On one occasion when Jesus was going into the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When Jesus noticed how the guest chose the places of honor, Jesus told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host and the host who has invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that your host comes, then he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus also said to the one who invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return, and you will have been repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. And as you're seated, we invite our children to be dismissed for their time of worship. It's like a habit. I have to have it. Let's pray together. We are at that part of the service, O oh God, where we're being invited to think together about a text, about a teaching, about a way to be formed as the people of God. So may the words that have been prepared be faithful to the words that have been read. And may the words that find their way into people's souls and into their hearts and minds, may they be the words that each one of us individually need to hear and collectively as the people of God. Form us now in the way and in the manner of the one who taught us how to pray giving us these words, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. When I say the word church to you, what's the first mental picture that comes to your mind? If you've been to Europe lately, perhaps you think of the big, huge cathedrals that uh, grace the countrysides. Or maybe you think of this particular space, Highland Baptist Church. Maybe this has been your church for a long time, and this is what you think of when you hear the word church. Maybe you think of a little storefront, or maybe you think of a country church where your parents or your grandparents took you to church. Fred Craddock, who was a New Testament scholar, says that in the Gospel of Luke, the picture painted by the Gospel writer when it comes to church is the picture of a table, a table. And when you think about it, in the Gospel of Luke, people are forever at the table. They're either setting the table, coming to the table, eating at the table, leaving the table, talking about table etiquette. It's important to the point that even in church now, we might say that the most important piece of furniture in the place aren't the pews or the pulpit or the baptistry or the organ. It's the table, the table. The table's where people are formed. It's where we join together symbolically in this space, but literally in other places in our building, to do the sacrament of eating. Eating is a a means of God's grace being made visible. And we gather as community around table, and when we do, there's an equality, there's an egalitarian nature to table, for we're, we're all hungry and we all need to eat. And there's this gratitude that comes with eating. And when it's done right, when the table is set, there is this sense of welcome and inclusion and great abundance. So it is at the table that we we learn habits. It's how we're formed. It's where we hear the family stories where we hear the tales and the legends of who we are and where we came from and what we're about, whether they're, they're told literally and factually or whether they, they contain, convey truths that are even beyond facts. We have a sense of identity. We know who we are. We're, we, we, we learn what's important in life and what's not important in life. We know, we learn about the things that don't profit And we learn about manners. We learn how to be, how to love, how to forgive, how to shape, how to share. And ultimately, the table becomes a place where someday, at some point, young people wake up and realize, I better start paying attention. Because someday, it's going to be my turn to set the table, to tell the stories, to convey to the next generation what's profoundly important in life. And so, when Jesus makes a comment on how guests choose their place of honor at the table, we know there's something here, something beyond the surface. In fact, on the surface, this is a rather odd parable, don't you think? The way you are honored is, You kind of feign humility. Go sit at the low seat, and then they'll come along and boost you up to where you need to be. Really? But we know this is a story that has something more to say. It's about who we are. It's not a story about the religious leaders back then, 
Although religious leaders often need to be criticized because we forget what's most important. But that's not even the point in this story. And I also don't think it's a story about how we should all feel guilty any time we have a party where just our friends are involved. I don't think he's putting the kibosh on that kind of party giving. What I think Luke is doing here and what Jesus is doing in this parable is giving us another picture of what the church ought to look like. How ought we behave when we come to the table of life? When we come to that space where we're all together, what should our stance be? And here Jesus, I think, gives us the most kind and important advice that we could ever receive. It's good advice. It's not bad advice. It's good advice. It's not punishment. It's not consequence. It's good news. And here it is. Go ahead and take the lower seat. In fact, don't even play the game. Don't waste your time, as Jeremiah said, on things that do not profit. And any time our minds or our spirits are distracted by this cakewalk of life where we we try to win the cake by sitting in the right seat, playing musical chairs with life in order to grab the winning seat, we're distracted. And we're not able to be the people that God called us to be. Take the lower seat, said Jesus. At the lower seat, you notice things. You notice things. You're you're paying attention. And you're with other people, and you're on a level playing ground. and, And you can see where their story and your story connect. And you can begin to understand other people's points of view. And if you're not careful, you're also liable to find amazing surprises. I love the the line in the the hymn we just sang, Lord of the universe, rich with surprise. You want to be surprised in life? You want to grow in life? Take the lower seat, said Jesus. One person who took the lower seat, who voluntarily went to where she did not want to go, was a friend of mine named Allison Stabler. Many of you know Allison. Uh, she's been a member of this church for almost a decade. Uh, we've, she had this experience that I asked if I could share with you, and she said, okay. Allison's one of, one of my favorite people. She's snarky like I am, and so uh, we, we get along well. We text on occasion. She was gravely concerned when I wrote in my pastor's column this week that I was going to fast from snarking uh, during this political campaign. She said, how will I recognize you? I assured her that was just for my official business, that snarkiness would continue. She's snarky. She's spiritual. She's deeply honest. She's uh, been a person of faith who left the faith for seven years. She was out in the madness. She was, I think in her words, lost. 
She got found about a year ago. She came back into faith. It awakened in her again. And she realized that when she was at her best was when she was in communion with God. And so she started into her life of faith again. But as life would have it, she needed to take some time to kind of regroup back in her home state of Alabama. Now, she's regaled me with stories about Alabama in the past, uh, but I've really not quite fully believed them. I thought she was just a good storyteller and given to exaggeration, but she's been telling me about living in Alabama. She lives with her mother, her mother's boyfriend. She broke her ankle. She was ready to come back to Louisville. She broke her ankle. I had to stay longer. And then one day, just a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, she learns from her mother that her father, with whom she's not spoken for years, her father is about to have a major surgery for cancer. And through his ex-wife, he asks Allison to come and stay with him, to be with him during surgery. She's incredulous. I've, I've not talked to him. I've not seen him. I've got all this baggage. He was abusive to me when I was a kid. Uh, that home represents everything that I, I want to run from. Oh, honey, I said, you don't have to do this. Th- th- this would be too much for, for you. And, and I might say that kind of thing to her just to goad her a little bit to make her do it. But I really, I said, I, I'm not trying to talk you into this. She said, I think I'm supposed to do this. I said, do you realize what you're walking into? That it could hook all of that stuff in you that, that's, that's just kind of latent and right there. She said, yeah, but this is mine to do. I said, if you do this, this is going to change your life forever. And I had no idea what I meant by that, but I just knew it was true. So she went. She got there before the surgery. She took a picture of the bedroom where uh, she would stay and sent it to me. And sure enough, there hanging on the wall was a great big Confederate flag. And in the foreground was a, a hat rack filled with holsters and guns and just everything that she's ever described to me. The father didn't really speak to her when she showed up. They exchanged some business information, what time he needed, needed to be at the hospital, what he could eat, what he couldn't eat. But that was pretty much about it. She texted, I don't know if I can do this. And I said, if you walk away now, no one will think you're, you're a coward. You've done a heroic thing just doing what you've done. She said, I'm sticking it out. She drove him the next day to the hospital. They took him back, got him prepped for the surgery. After he was prepped, before they wheeled him away, she went back to see him, and there was no word spoken. She kind of thought maybe that might be the time because she didn't know if he would survive the surgery. But they wheeled him away, and he said, not a word, not a word. As she waited during those long hours of surgery, she texted and said, I'm not sure how to feel. I'm not sure what I want the outcome of this surgery to be. And I, I feel bad that I feel this way, but this is, this is how I feel. 
Here's a man who's never met one need in my life. He's never affirmed me. He's never loved me. He's never said he was proud of me. Well, he survived. And she brought him home from the hospital. And she had to kind of parent him, not only cook for him, but kind of be his parent. One day he was going to get in the car and go. She said, the doctor said, you're not supposed to drive. He said, oh, it won't hurt me. She said, yeah, but what about everyone else? She said, that's just the way he is. And then one day I get a text from her. Her texts are a little um, flowery, uh, a little colorful, so uh, I'll edit some words out. But it starts like this, OMG. He's in there talking to a friend on the phone. And I heard him say that I'm staying with him, and then he blanking said that I've been a big help and I cook good food. Two exclamation marks. I've never heard him say a positive thing about me before. She goes on in a second text. I made biscuits and tomato gravy this morning. And he's in there telling his friend it was the best blank tomato gravy he's ever had in his life. And he ate anything I cooked. I can't blank and believe this. And I write back, I'm crying because I was. This was a miracle. This is like the Red Sea parting. She said, brother, I can't believe this. I know he'd never say it directly to me, but this is amazing. I text back, sometimes we can only say indirectly what we can't say directly. Maybe directly is too close for his security, too close for his comfort. And if so, What experiences were in his life that formed him in this way? She wrote back, I know why he's the way he is. I'll tell you about it sometime. But a combination of abuse, neglect, abandonment, and untreated mental illness is the basic cause. That would pretty much do it, right? She texts again. It's like we talked about, she and I. He's not capable of showing love like a normal, healthy person. But, and here's the miracle. I'm learning how to recognize how he shows it in his own dysfunctional and damaged way. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just an unfortunate truth. Yes, yes, I wrote. But I trust that you can see it's still love at its root. She wrote back, I was convinced for a long time that he didn't love me. But I see it now. He does. He can't get past his own self-protective comfort zone to show it like we would. But he is showing it. And I just had to learn how to recognize it. Do you see? She would have, this would have never happened. Never happened. If she hadn't taken the lower seat, gone where perhaps she didn't want to go. One last text. Next month marks a year since I came back to faith. It's been by far the hardest, most challenging year of my life. 
but it's also been the very best, most rewarding time I've ever experienced. I wouldn't change any of it. The prophet Jeremiah asks, Why do you spend your life on things that don't matter? Why do you dig wells that don't even hold water? What matters in life? Jesus' table etiquette, his party host rules, is an invitation to join this miraculous, and I say it quite literally, miraculous work of love. To see it open locked doors, to see the waters part, to see the dead raised, to see the oppressed go free, and discover this great mystery that at the banquet table of God, there are no bad seats and good seats because the table is round. And we're all in this together, and all are welcome. All are welcome. And that's the weird thing about this faith that Jesus gives us. It's not dualistic. It's about oneness. And until we're all at the table, all of us, the table's not ready. We're not all home. I learned this week from a friend that the text for today, this passage from Luke chapter 14, was actually the catalyst for some of the civil rights lunch counter sit-ins back in the 1960s, that era of time that Thomas Merton referred to as the greatest example of Christian faith in action. And just like Allison Stabler, there were some brave leaders who heard God's call to live into the dream and to break down those barriers, to go sit at the lower seat. One of them was a woman named Fannie Lou Hamer, She's in our fellowship hall windows downstairs. Hamer saw the church and the civil rights movement itself as kind of a a welcoming table, a table of inclusion. It's a line from an old Negro spiritual. I'm going to sit at that welcoming table one of these days. She writes, the welcome table is like the kind found in a rural Baptist church on that special Sunday when you have dinner on the grounds and there's this abundance of southern cooking that's spread out for everyone to enjoy and everyone's invited. Even Governor Ross Barnett, the racist governor of Mississippi at the time, and Senator Eastland, even they're invited. Though they're going to need to learn some manners, she writes. They're going to need to learn some manners. What are those manners? The manners are there's enough for everyone. And that God's grace, God's love, and God's forgiveness can forgive anyone. The old hymn says the the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. In the black church on Communion Sunday, after they passed out the bread and cup, the minister will stand in the center aisle and ask, Has everyone been served? Has everyone been served? Because until everyone's served, until Ross Barnett and Senator Eastland and Allison's father, you, me, 
Until we're all here, the family's not fully here. The meal's not complete. The kingdom hasn't come. But in those moments when God does the miracle, you taste it. You see it. You know it. And you give thanks to God. Let's pray together. For those moments of great grace when we see your presence revealed, thank you, God. Thank you for the eyes to see it, for the heart to receive it, for the hands to touch it. May we, as your faithful people, take the lower seat and keep our eyes open for the surprise. In your holy name we pray. Amen.